So far, our series on the Flying Irishman has looked at the traditional understanding of aviation, the surrounding business and the Irish within it. Those in the know, though, predict that we are heading to a new stage of aviation. And wouldn't you know it, the Irish are at the centre of it. It is predicted that by 2027 and the Ryder Cup specifically, Eva told air taxis, electrical, vertical takeoff and landing taxis capable of fully autonomous flight will be in our skies and readily available from a base in Shannon Airport. Irish businesswoman and aviation entrepreneur Julie Garland, my guest today, founder and CEO of Avtrain, are at the centre of this new phase in aviation and the use of drones that is literally changing the way we live from how we transport, feed, equip, maintain, preserve, build and make art in the world. She is a former barrister at law, a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, an airline training captain, an aircraft maintenance engineer. And prior to undertaking her position as CEO of Avtrain, she was the CEO of Thunder Tiger Aviation and the former director of compliance for Norwegian Air International. She has devoted her life to aviation and drones. If you want to train as a drone pilot in Ireland, the chances are you'll have to go through Julie and Avtrain. You certify drone pilots. In a nutshell, you certify drone pilots and operators for all types of fixed wing and hybrid single and multi-motor drones up to a certain size. Now, drones are something that I would imagine the aviation industry doesn't know what to make of this because it is more traffic in the sky. When you say you're shaking up the industry, how... How have they been with the idea of change? Because I'd imagine it's not something they're hugely enamored with right away. Hey, Jonathan, considering I come from, I, I, that I am a pilot and I come from the background of the aviation industry, when I talk to my friends, sometimes they get a little bit upset and feel like I'm trying to replace them and remove them from the cockpit. <laughs> and what I just want to start off by saying is there's plenty of room for everybody and there's plenty of room for everybody in our skies as well as in the cockpits and the flight decks. Um, one of the things with this innovative air mobility and this new mobility that we're talking about, although we're talking about unmanned, our mission at Abtrain is really to keep the skies safe and encourage prolific operations of drones, but really making sure that we have the highest standards of training and certification. In order to do that, we need to allow for operators of these aircraft to be trained to the highest standards where they're on the ground operating these aircraft. Yeah. We need to allow them to be operating multiple aircraft at the same time. So, we're just moving slightly away from the traditional role that a pilot has had. There are still pilots for these aircraft. There are still operators. There's mm. still a person in charge of the operation. So we just need more pilots, not less, even though we're moving towards unmanned aircraft. So in everything I read, that, that was the conclusion I arrived at, was that actually pilots <laughs> are working from home. It's so strange to think about the pilot and the training that's involved, like the extensive training that you've built your business on and recognised, you know, the gap in the industry for Avtrain as just being so essential. Now, there's loads of people tuning in now going, but drones give people the willies in some ways. There's a certain amount of trepidation around drones at the moment. There's obviously 
the one end of the spectrum, which is it's a brilliant present for your little child for their 10th or 11th birthday. But then there's the other side of which is, as you say, up to 70 kgs is what you train people for. Those are monster drones, big yokes that can film these stunning shots of uh, Dublin Bay and down the Poolbeg chimneys. You must be aware of this kind of mixed messaging or kind of bad press that drones get. The the whole idea with drones, what we look to try and do with our train is the three things. If it's dull, if it's dirty or if it's dangerous, then a drone should be doing it. And what we're trying to do is to facilitate making human lives better, easier and safer. Uh, so if you look at dull, it's boring jobs, it's repetitive jobs. If you look at dirty, it's where you're talking about chemicals or going into zones or regions where there could be contamination and dangerous. We're looking at people operating from heights and um, all of the things. And a, and a big factor in all of that, when we look towards the three days, dull, dirt and dangerous is also cost. You know, we can facilitate this at a much lower cost. You know, if you take a survey on a building or wanting to go up and look at a roof on an old building and see, is it safe? You know, you don't have to build scaffolding to do it. You don't have to take all of that time. You don't have to block off roads. So therefore you're really facilitating. One of the things that COVID has really had an impact on, it's been twofold in our industry. One is the acceptance of online learning, which has, has, has allowed us to develop as app train very significantly and expand our horizons where we're, where we're providing training. But also the second thing is, is the public acceptance of, rem- of things happening remotely, mm. not always having to have interaction with human beings. We love interaction with human beings and we all want that in our day-to-day lives. But there are certain situations where we don't need to have interaction with the human beings and part of this is where we look towards, you know, drone deliveries is starting to really become a thing. I know Bobby Healy with Manas really normalizing drones into day-to-day life and has massive success rating. And really what we're setting by trying to do, and what I personally, my personal mission is really trying to move this dial from social acceptability and, and public acceptance of these to desirability. So it's going from acceptance to desirability and really be- and it does become the norm. It does become part of our day-to-day lives. But do that through education and through educating the general public in what drones can do and the benefits of them and, and then explain the negativity that comes out of it. You know, a lot of people are very concerned about privacy, about data protection. We have very strong rules and regulations in place that protect all of those rights. And people are not going around trying to film you in the back garden. And if they are, it's illegal and they shouldn't be doing it. You know, and they need to be taken to task over it. So when we talk about these, using them commercially and using them in industrial contexts, that, you know, this is what we're talking about. And these privacy concerns don't come into that realm. You mentioned legal. Now, Julie, this is the, you know, the, the whole aviation series that we started here, these little mini series that we started doing, revealed all of these characters behind flying. These individuals who had another story prior to taken to the sky. Now, this is not just you. You are not a drone obsessed woman who created a business from it. Quite the contrary. Fill people in on exactly where you came from and how the law fits in with that. Sure. So I suppose my my love of aviation started from my grandfather, who was the captain on 747s in Aer Lingus. And he brought me into flight simulator when I was eight years of age. And, and since that, I had just, I, I, I used to see him go out the door in his uniform and be so proud of him. Right. And he brought me into the actual flight simulator and I saw what it was actually all about. And that was at eight years of age. And I, and I think this goes back to how do we 
and, you know, make sure that we facilitate this industry going forward. And that's about getting to our children and really allowing them. You can see it, you can be it and um, all of these things. So he brought me into the flight simulator and I went flying at eight years of age. It was the back 111 flight simulator out in, in, um, uh, out in the hangars out in Aer Lingus at the time. And blew your mind, clearly. Absolutely. Completely <laughs> and utterly. And, you know, it was just all of these buttons and knobs and dials and, you know, being in the air and having control of this. And, and it really, I mean, flight simulators, they've, they've really come on since then. But for an eight-year-old child, it was just mind-blowing completely. So that's where it all started from. And I went on, I left school and there was nobody recruiting for pilots at that time. You know, there was no, you had to kind of look towards the self-improver route. It wasn't something I would have been able to afford at the time. So I, Aer Lingus advertised for aircraft maintenance engineers. And it was my dad who, you know, talked to me about it. And he'd always been interested in mechanics. And, you know, I'd always been tinkering around with cars with him and things like that. So he said, you know, would you not, boats particularly. I said, would you consider this? And he said, yeah, it sounds great, actually. And it's a, you know, it's a foot in the door of Erlingus. Mm. And, um, you know, so I did and I got it. And it was like 7,000 applicants. And there was 40 of us taken out of that group and 20 for what's called AMC and 20 um, avionics. So, so we're looking towards the two slightly different disciplines. And, you know, some of them are still, still my best friends. We all still hang out together. So that was a group of 20 apprentices that got together. I did my apprenticeship in Erlingus. And then went to work for what was it did, went from hunting cargo airlines to our contractors now ASL and um, and went to work for them as line maintenance control after my apprenticeship and that was really the engineering side of it and from that I still though always wanted to go flying and Hugh Flynn was um, the CEO now the chairman of ASL was very encouraging and his thing was that if you support people in aviation aviation it, it turns into a better a better place so if you support mm-hmm. people throughout that so he helped me towards my flying. And he contributed um, towards my flying. And, and I was going down to South Africa to do my private pilot's license. And it's, he was South African in the company and had a very significant input in Johannesburg. So I went down there to, um, in, the, in the late 90s to Johannesburg, which possibly wasn't the best place in the world at the time um, to go off on your own on an adventure. But it was absolutely fabulous. Fell in love with South Africa, fell in love with flying. And I became a pilot. And they say that the, the day that you go solo, which you normally do, you know, somewhere between 10 and 15 hours, the day that you go solo, you're a pilot. And after that, you're just adding experience and you're adding on type ratings after that. So I did my private pilot's license, my commercial came back here, went to the National Flight Center out in Western Airport. And I continued my flying there, became a flight instructor. And I then got a, um, a job with Air Aaron, uh, flying the ATR. And we brought the, one of the first ATRs into the country that Air Aaron were operating. And uh, then went from there to direct entry captain into CityJet and was a, a training captain, typewriting instructor. And then eventually I get to answer your question, which is how did it all fit into all of it? I mean, hold on, hold on here. You've said so much. Like, this is, you know, just chapter one. And when it's this addictive and everyone we've spoken to from Deck Ryan on down, they've talked about how it's quite similar to horse racing in some ways that people are into horse racing just are, just it's in their blood that that's who they are they don't want have time for much else it seems like such a curveball to then go and then i decided i'll become a barrister how in the name of god does that happen and and it really did come about in in a, a somewhat unusual way i suppose the recession had a big part to play in that and so i decided that I decided that wasn't good. I'd been nearly 10 years flying and I decided that I wasn't going to retire from the left seat of an aeroplane. And that was the decision I made. And I decided that while I still had enough grey matter to get through college, that it was time that I should study now rather than waiting right. until I retired from an airline to go and study. 
And um, so I decided that law was going to be my chosen field of study. I wanted to become a barrister, but I had decided I would do the diploma in legal studies and then the barrister at law course. And then I would go back flying for a few years. And then I would, um, after, then I would go dabbling then when I decided to retire. So that was my, that was my plan at the time. I started it. I, uh, I got called to the bar. I had taken some of the inbabsons from CityJet and we were in the midst of the depre- of, of the recession at the time. And therefore CityJet were um, reasonably happy for me to extend that. And so when I got called to the bar, they offered me a further year's leave of absence and I said, yes, I'd try it out. So I, I took another year offline and uh, I'd say, got called to the bar and went dabbling. And I think the first time I stood up in a courtroom and that I realized that this is what I was probably always meant to do. And, um, and my other half of the time said to me that I was getting paid to argue what more for that I could ever have with like, for. You make, it so, uh, you make it sound so uh, simple. <laughs> when there's probably people listening to this, studying for the bar, going, you then you just got called to the bar. I mean, it's a massive commitment. My own well, grandmother studied for years and f- failed these exams so many times. You you say that it felt like what you were meant to do. I mean, did you just fly through the exams? Did it just? Did you find you had a natural aptitude for it? No, it was incredibly difficult for me. It really was. Everything that I had done in my career and in my life up until then had been very much practically based. You know, if you think of the apprenticeship, if you think of flying, it's all hands on. It's learning by doing. Whereas this was the first time that I'd ever really, really tried to apply myself from an academic point of view. And I had to retrain how I think, I had to retrain how my brain retained information. It was extraordinarily difficult. I mean, and also the first year I was doing it, I was flying a full-time flying monster and attending college five nights Unbelievable. And it really, <laughs> like, so, so I'm, I'm definitely not sleep at the controls. Definitely not, never. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was incredibly difficult. And you did have to pace yourself and pace your time and plan your time. And really time management became such a huge yeah. thing and such a huge issue. Um, and managing your time and also trying to have some time for yourself as well as trying to work, you know, full-time role. And I mean, I never, I never left flying. The only thing that ever happened was that the, 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 the life, uh, quality of life um, was really what took over eventually. When I, when I did get called to the bar and when I looked at being able to go to, I had missed the two years previous that I probably missed every family, christening, wedding, funeral. It didn't matter what it was. I was away for it. And there is a certain quality of life and standard of life that you must accept when you do go flying airplanes for a living. And when I got, I suppose, a taste of something other than that, when I was at the bar, it really changed my mind and my perspective about what it is that's important in life. And, and a big part of that was having quality of life. And um, so that's where I stayed. I, so I stayed at the bar and then 2015 came along and, and Norwegian actually approached me at that stage. And I went into Norwegian as a director of compliance which really brought together a lot of the roles that I had been doing previously, which was... So what, you know, what, is, what does compliance mean? I mean, I, again, I, I just can't get over when I went down through this CV, Julie, that, uh, you, know, these are, you know, these are all lifetime jobs. You get into Aer Lingus, most Irish people, particularly at that time, would be going, well, I'm going to cling on here for dear life. You seem to have had some sort of part of you that just wanted to max out whatever uh, capacity was within you. Compliance, it doesn't sound very romantic or exciting. Uh, what, what exactly is it? 
Well, I suppose I had been dealing with compliance since I had started out in Weston where we had set up, um, it's a, what it is, it's regulatory compliance. It's looking towards an aviation company and ensuring that they're compliant with the aviation regulations, right. whether it's in airworthiness, looking towards maintenance standards, whether it's in flight operations, looking towards the training of pilots, the actual operation itself, the compliance with the, it's the operations manual for the airline, compliant with regulation. And then uh, do you do what you say and say what you do? And you know, and it's really ch- doing that that double check on that. So that when the authorities come in to audit an airline, they come to the compliance manager, they come to the director of compliance, and they sit down with you and they go through everything. So and if if you haven't done your job, the the essentially the fleet can be grounded. Exactly. So it's really looking towards the compliance and making sure the compliance manager is ensuring compliance with the the airline with all the different heads of department with the CEO. It's direct track to the CEO. And then with all the heads of department to make sure that the airline is fully compliant with all the regulatory aspects. And when you look towards Norwegian, Norwegian was super exciting because they were operating so many different jurisdictions at that time. They were looking to go to the US. They were being blocked by the Department of Transport in the US. Um, They were just not issuing the license. They had approved the license. They had no reason to refuse it. So there was all of those aspects to it. So there was all of that legal quagmire that was going on with Norwegian at the time. It was a really fascinating time to work with them. So it was more than just compliance. And we also got involved. I was very involved in the project there where we looked towards changing how airlines work as well and really looking towards the looking at, at a central part of people who can serve multiple air, um, air operator certificates or AOCs and multiple airlines set up in multiple different jurisdictions to avail of, of, um, of different uh, rights um, between countries for, for the routes and you know, and so you wanted to have multiple AOCs in different countries. So, for example, in Spain, you know, to get into South America, and you had all of those um, those routes that were already developed, and that you could buy over. Um, but you had to have a Spanish AOC to do that. But you didn't necessarily need that full team of all of those people in Spain, where the central you could have a central operations. So we did a huge amount of work there about about centralizing operations within airlines and really streamlining airlines across the massive, massive pressure. I'd imagine like when you're dealing with something as big as that and the role is as vast as that and there's people obviously below you. But how how do you cope with that level of, you know, well, the book stops with you? Pressures for tires. <laughs> um, like I don't I, I mean, I think the whole thing and the one thing I would say about Norwegian was the team that was there. And, and that's the whole thing that if you're not an individual you know, you're not, I, I actually, I heard a quote today and it was, if you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, go together. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's really, a running uh, and it's, uh, uh, yeah. mantra. And, and, and it really, really, it's so, so true. And everything is about the team and about the team of people that are around Norwegian have an incredible team of people. And they have my own team in the compliance department. And we looked after everything. We looked after technical, all the airworthiness, all the flight operations. You know, and so it was really and ground operations and then say shared services, all of these different and then all the USDOT and all of the other really exciting things that were going on in Norwegian at the time. So it was it was a really exciting time. But that was the time when I I had got involved in drones as well at that time in 2015. Right. Well, let me jump in there, because obviously the uh, the first drones that show up must be so different to what you are dealing with now and what you're training people on. I can. I think we all remember the kind of the nano helicopter arriving even. And I think the infiltration of it was so gradual, but definitely there was a day when it was like, how how have they made this this small? How is this even working? Do you remember that day? 
I, I do. And um, I actually, I have a very short anecdote about it. My little brother was given a, um, a helicopter. My little brother's, um, he was eight at the time. He's what is he, 20, nearly 30 years younger than me. So he was given a little helicopter as a present and I had never flown one and it was Christmas day and he asked me to go and fly it. And I went outside into the back garden and I had never flown a model aircraft or, or a drone or anything else. And I decided I would go outside to do this rather than try and fly it in the house because he was showing me up flying it around the sitting room with great skill and dexterity. So I went outside to do this and realized that the wind was actually too strong for it. So I decided to fly it up was going to be the best thing. And I then landed in a tree and my, my little brother just looked up at me and he said, and I thought you were a pilot. <laughs> One of the most devastating moments. So, so I learned about flying drones from that. And really, I mean, everything that I've done with drones and, and you know, moving on from that has really been a, a, a very steep learning curve because everybody's been learning at the same time. And this is why this industry is, it's so innovative and the people who are getting involved in it are fascinating. Everybody is, and, and the industry is jumping forward so quickly. And it really is this game changer in aviation. You know, it allows us, as I said, you know, the dull, dirty, dangerous, but also we're looking towards eVTOL aircraft, which are these air taxis. And we're looking towards future mobility and we're looking for urban air mobility. And we're looking about carrying people. It's not just about the dull, dirty, dangerous, we're moving to the next step. We, we've spent the last, you know, seven years doing dull, dirty, dangerous. We're now ready to move on to the next step, which is actually putting people into unmanned aircraft, ultimately putting them into unmanned aircraft that will be manned at the initial stages. And I think for the next 10 to 15 years, we're probably going to see these air taxis that we're talking about actually having pilots in them, which is why we've set up another organization called Vertex Aero, which myself and two other companies, ASG and VectorCab, have come together to set up that. And we'll be looking towards training pilots that will be in the aircraft. So ultimately, these aircraft will be autonomous. But in the interim period, when we move this, as I say, this dial from public acceptance to public desirability, we're going to have pilots in these air taxis that are going to be hopefully hopping around a roof near you soon. That is Futurama stuff. This is where a lot of people, I feel, are just oblivious to, the, you know, exactly how close this is. We started out the conversation, Julie, by talking about what exactly the kind of public image of drones is and how you've you know, made it your mission now with Avtrain to make Ireland this hub for excellence and training in the drone industry. But I don't think people know exactly the extent to which drones are going to be part of their life. Now, you've mentioned the 3Ds a bunch of times, the dull, dirty and dangerous jobs that we should have drones doing, whether that's protection of animals, filming in war zones, weather, just actually monitoring weather. We touched on the privacy concerns, but I don't think people are aware of exactly what benefits are lying ahead for us. How much of a paradigm shift is going to have to take place before individuals will get into a craft that doesn't have another person at the wheel? Well, I think, as I said, moving, moving this dial from, from, at the moment, we're not even a public acceptance. And part of the reason that we're not at acceptance is because the public isn't aware of what we want to do. And they're not aware of the advantages of it. So I think the first thing is, is to educate the public on what air taxis are, on, on you know, and actually getting. So last week I was over at um, Air One and Supernal opened their new urban airport in, sorry, urban airport. And they opened Air One, which is their, their initial version force, their, their airport for these air taxis. And Supernal were there 
Antipreneur are, you know, are, are, are one of the leading OEMs, original equipment manufacturers in this area. And they're talking about a launch of their aircraft in sometime around 2027. And the rest of them are kind of aiming towards 2024. A lot of them have pushed out to 2025. So we're going to have these aircraft in our skies, 2024, 2025, and then moving towards, you know, Supernal is looking towards 2027. But the idea is, is to try and get the public to engage prior to that so that they understand what these are. They understand what they can do. They understand the benefits of them. They're, they're, they're virtually silent. There's no noise emission. There's no emissions from them. You can get from A to B. You take congestion off the roads. You take traffic off the roads. And you can move quickly from A to B. So the time saving is incredible. But the big thing is emissions and noise are mm. the two things that always concern people. And these are two things that we're removing from the air transport industry. And um, if you look at, but it's not just, it's, it's, it's about carrying people. But the other side of this industry where there's going to be huge input is on the air cargo side. So on the, you know, moving cargo from place to place. So we did last year, we had, and um, there was ourselves, Avtrain, Shannon Group, Future Mobility, Campus Ireland, and Skyports. And we had gone through Skyports, their authorizations for their beyond visual line of sight. Light unmanned aircraft systems operator certificate. Little bit of a of a mouthful. BV loss look is what we call it. They carried out this and um, this authorization through Avtrain, which gives them their European license to operate, where they self-authorize their own operations. And we carried out proof of concept for the integration of drones into supply chain logistics for FedEx down in Shannon, from our base at Future Mobility Campus Ireland. So from from right at the perimeter fence of Shannon Airport across to Foyne's Fort. We were operating up to 30 flights a day. That's colossal. Wow. That's tremendous. That's global news. You know, I mean, this was, this was incredible what we achieved at Shannon. And, and we, just, we just get on with it and do it rather than shouting about what we're doing. And sometimes maybe we should shout about what we're doing a lot more because when we talk about, you know, moving that dial from acceptability to desirability, if the public aren't aware of the kinds of things that we're doing and the kind of things that we're achieving on a day-by-day basis, then... You know, we can't suddenly launch this on them and say, yeah. we're here and we're doing this. So, so I think maybe we need a bit more visibility around what we're actually doing well, and allow the public to come and see it, touch it, feel it. Let me ask you this question then, because obviously you're right that, it, you know, you guys are the experts and expertise is created behind closed doors. And then eventually we accept it as, oh, these guys know what they're doing. Because they've, you know, you've done the hard yards. But equally, there's a, a shift taking place in terms of on land transport with driverless cars. Do you see the success of driverless cars as being integral to or absolutely the bedrock of whether this thing will, to excuse the pun, take off? Absolutely. And that's where FMCI has grown from. FMCI, Future Mobility Campus Ireland, was originally established completely auto- automotive industry entirely. It's Jaguar Land Rover, it's Seagate, it's, it's, it's all, it's, sens- it's Valero, it's sensor and it's car manufacturers and sensor companies and data management companies coming together. And they partnered with Shannon uh, Commercial Properties, who own the, uh, the public road network in or around the business park in Shannon. So what we had was we had privately owned public road with Jaguar Land Rover's massive, huge software center that they built down there, all in one place for the testing and certification of, of autonomous cars. So you look towards this, this whole um, consortium that we set up, started back, the guys that set up FMCI, 
they got to talk to me. We met up at, at Electronomous, going back to Killarney, to Killarney about six, five, year, five years ago. And we said, why do we not layer an air piece on top of this? You know, this is all, mm. the, the synergies between the industries are just the crossovers between the industries are incredible. And the whole thing is about um, learning from the automotive industry. The automotive industry has been trying to look at towards full autonomy for a long, long time. We need to learn from them why it hasn't happened so that we can accelerate that when we look towards this in aviation. A lot of aircraft we have out there, we have this technology. The technology's been there for a long, long time. It's there in, it's there in the military. It's there in, and we need to get it into the civilian space and take advantage of what's already been learned from this industry, both in the air and on the ground, combine those learnings and really accelerate this industry. You know, Ireland has such an opportunity, though, to be a center of excellence for autonomy. If you look at the west coast of Ireland, the western seaboard, we've got airspace that we can utilize. We've got an incredibly cooperative aviation regulator here in Ireland. They're looking for business. They're looking to attract business into Ireland, but they're very much and um, very conscious of implementing all of the regulations, either in advance or very proactive as well about developing regulations and regulatory structures that allow for this to happen. We have an incredibly proactive ANSP, the Air Navigation Service Provider in Air Traffic Control that allowed us and facilitated us flying unmanned aircraft in controlled airspace beyond visual line of sight. You know, that hasn't happened across Europe and we did it here in Ireland and we were, you know, we were pushing the boundaries all the time, but in a really safe, controlled environment with a structure around it, as I say, between the regulator, the ANSP, Shannon Airport. Um, looking towards then the ideal one is the Ryder Cup in 2027. So we see that as a major event where we can look towards having air taxis here operating from our Verti port, um, which we add um, planning permission for down in Shannon. And we put in an initial planning for change of use from what was a car park. So it's really, it's a drone port now. We put down car park, we have our, you know, we can put in fire services there. We've got it fenced off. We have it secure. And we'll be looking towards now developing a Verti port there which is the next iteration of that. So the standards are just being published for that. And we have these massive swathes of regulation coming towards us. And it's a case of absorbing those. But we really need this collaboration. We have it in Shannon. We have maintenance organizations. We have continuing our worthiness organizations. We have Future Mobility Campus Ireland. We have Vertex Aero down there, as well as I said, doing pilot training, looking towards putting simulators in for these aircraft. We have our Vertiport. But Vertiports, I'm going to say this before, Vertiports are like fax machines. There's no point in having one of them. We need to be able to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the obvious one for that is looking towards, you know, Ryder Cup 2027, Adair Manor. We need to come towards Dublin as well and link up the, the, the airports and, and infrastructure generally as well. Judy, it's so much fun to talk to you about this. And I get that, you know, we may look back on this interview as kind of a historical document of remember that time when we were talking about this as something for the future even though it does like it you'd be forgiven for thinking this sounds very back to the future too but when you say the Ryder Cup that's so close there is a part of me though when I when I sit here and listen to it and as much as I'm keen for these things to happen that is there's a little fear there's a little fear inside of well, things, as you say, there's laws for these things that if people are going to breach privacy, then they should be prosecuted. But, well, what happens if they do breach the, the law? We know they will. If there's a law to be broken, people will break it. And what's the consequence of that? And secondly, it's kind of a two-part question. If something is dangerous, there will be 
accidents with it. There's just no way that something will have a flawless record. You must be conscious of both things, given your background in both aviation and the law. For sure, Jared. I mean, just to deal with the first one with regards to enforcement, there's New European regulations which came into effect on the, the 1st of January, 12 months ago. And so we've had, we've had a bedding in period of these regulations. And, and under these regulations, they talk about the fact that from a, from a drone perspective, from small unmanned aircraft operating, you know, the types that you'll see operating around doing surveys or taking photographs a lot of the time. The idea is, is that they have said in that regulation that the, the, the Irish Aviation Authority or, or the regulator, National Aviation Authority in any individual member state may not be the best place to enforce these regulations where there's non-compliance with them. And what they're really looking towards there is that it may be that in, in different jurisdictions that it is either the police force, that it's the military, that it's somebody else, because they say that a lot of these activities by their very nature actually take place away from airports and aviation authorities tend to center their activities around airports. Mm. So one of the, some of the work that we're doing now, we've been working with the Irish Aviation Authority. They've set up three, the government have set up three subcommittees and we're advising those subcommittees around the basis of they're looking towards enforcement as one of those subcommittees. We're working with the legal people within the Aviation Authority and there's going to be a new statutory instrument which will allow for on-the-spot fines. So it's really trying to take people to task on an individual basis. The IA has been really proactive in phoning people up if they see a non-compliance if somebody's publishing information, a lot of people are publishing, they don't realize it's about education as much as enforcement as well. But they don't realize the dangers involved in what they're doing, where they're operating close to people and they're operating and, you know, without training. If anybody's coming to us and come through our course, they will never operate unsafely because they will know what the risks involved are. So that's what it's all about. It's all about educating people. Even people who are flying these very small drones, there's a danger involved. There's an inherent danger involved. They're spinning propellers on them no matter what. And even with animals, kids operating over crowds. And the reliability of these drones has dramatically in increased. Since 2015, when we first started off, they used to fly away. They used to fall out of the sky. They don't do that anymore. They're much, much more reliable now than why we're doing. Like what, why, why wouldn't they fall out of the sky? I know this seems like a silly question. Yeah, not at all. When I realized that in the Ukraine, they're using you know drones as weapons, that a you know, kamikaze drone is a, is a thing now. Well, what, yeah. Why are you so confident that they won't fall out of the sky and land well, on my head? A couple of things. One is that what the, what the main uh, manufacturers of these small, these you know, commercial drones that are available off the shelf that hobby pilots are using. We're not talking about the enterprise drones. The enterprise drones that are used in industry have redundancies built into them. These larger drones that you'd see operating around, they have parachutes built into them. They have flight termination systems on them so that if they're operating, say, in a congested area in Dublin, if you see a large drone operated by a professional operator, that will have what's called a flight termination system on it, which means that it cannot go outside of the planned area. And if it does go outside of the planned area, that flight termination system, which is a containment measure, will be activated and a parachute will pop out and the drone will flutter nicely to the ground. That's the idea of it right. and that's why we're doing that. And, and it's all about building in redundancies and building in safety standards. And that's why we need these enforcement measures as well, is to make sure that commercial operators are given the credibility that they've gone through this training certification, the standards that they're adhering to. And that's the only time that we can have this proliferation of drones. We need to cut out the dangerous non-conforming operators who are out there who are just completely flagrantly disregarding the rules and regulations that are there and are flying their drones in dangerous situations. And that's what the enforcement is all about, is by taking them to task on the spot fines, also then prosecutions and criminal, and that can lead to criminal prosecutions as well for endangerment. And it can lead, as I say, there's a new statutory instrument that's going through that would allow for on the spot fines for the Irish Aviation Authority. 
So that that's the first part of it um, around the enforcement piece, mm-hmm. I suppose. And there's a huge amount of work. And as I say, there is a government subcommittee put together specifically to deal with this and also tasking the Garda ultimately as well with the enforcement and educating them on what the offences around operating a drone illegally are. Um, and the other side of that then is the is the commercial operations and, and talking about, you know, these larger aircraft operating around our skies. Now, it's going to take some time before the hopping from roof to roof. We don't have the infrastructure here, here in Ireland. We don't have the infrastructure in Dublin to allow for these proliferation of these air taxis around Dublin city centre. You know, we don't have the rooftops that they can hop from one rooftop to the other. It, it needs, they will come around in new, newer cities and cities that are purposely built and everything else. But the thing as well with these aircraft, all of these aircraft, all of the OEMs are aiming for this, this gold standard within aviation, which is this 10 to the minus nine safety case. And what that means is, is that it is as safe as a commercial airline. So if you get onto your Ryanair, your your Aer Lingus, your, your Stobart, whoever, whoever it is that you get onto, sorry, Emerald now, if you get onto your, you know, your commercial airliner and you bought a ticket for this, that's the, that's the safety factor that that is built, maintained and flown to. And it's the same for this industry. We're moving towards that now within the eVTOL, within this electric, you know, E is for electric, VTOL is vertical takeoff and landing. So within this industry, we're moving towards this, the safety standards of 10 to the minus nine, 10 to the minus seven is for general aviation. If you go into your light airplane and go out buzzing around, that's the safety factor for that, if you like. And 10 to the minus nine, which is what all of these OEMs are aiming for, is the commercial aviation. So the public can have great confidence in that, that we're, we're building these aircraft and we're maintaining them and we're operating them to those standards. So that commercial aviation grade and that commercial aviation standard. Wow. Well, I mean, really well answered. <laughs> You're obviously well used to being asked these things as well, Julie, because these are like I am just expressing what I identify through the research as the concerns. And, you know, it is like I find it so exciting. Like I'm one of those people that's like, of course, we'll iron out all these creases and these problems and, you know, things will be better as a result of this progress. It must be exciting when you know, you did see a certain shift in the view when the pandemic, as bad as it was, actually highlighted to people that there's very vulnerable people in remote parts that need things brought to them. And you're sitting there at home going, I know exactly how to do it. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, when you look towards, there was a, a trial done here and it shouldn't be, it should be a lot more than a trial at this stage. And we're, we're working with a couple of companies and hopefully we'll have announcements now the next couple of months. We're working with the Ukrainian company at the moment who have set up a company here in Ireland in order to get the European authorizations. And they're looking towards um, this you know, it's cargo delivery. When you look at what Bobby's doing with MANA, when you look at their capability to bring a prescription from a chemist straight to somebody's doorstep without them having to go outside. They can phone their doctor, they can go online, get an online consultation and then have this delivered from their pharmacy direct to their door. You know, it's not, you look at the Aran Islands and there was a proof of concept carried out there a couple of years ago where the guys flew um, from Inverin over across the Aran Islands and they brought over diabetes insulin and they brought back a blood sample and you know it all of these are so doable there's within the current regulatory environment that we have as i say we did our proof of concept with fedex about the integration of drones into supply chain logistics bobby's doing it on the drone delivery side with a huge amount going on here in ireland and that public shift in i, I want something i want it now and this 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 immediate the need for immediacy we're fulfilling that need 
and, and, and not just on the medical supplies, but also on, you know, and we're taking this back to local and supporting local business where, you know, things like, you know, your local bookshop, your, I, I know that Bobby talks about it, that the Eureka was when they delivered a fine to Guinness during the, uh, during the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the perfect settling time was there three minutes flying for a pint of Guinness. But we really are getting to these Eureka stages with these, with drone operations and allowing for the, the, the use cases. Like we do a huge amount of work with the Irish Coast Guard and some of the work that we're probably private stuff within Avtrain. Um, where we have the training contract and we're really looking to accelerate out what they do with drones and how they can utilize drones and really for the public good. And then we're also, we've done a lot of work with different search and rescue, with local search and rescue yeah. and groups and societies and even with some of the animal welfare as well. So what we're looking to do there all the time is to, for the, the promoting drones for the, for the public good as well and, and really making sure that they're, they become acceptable as well in this really positive use cases but that they're also integrated gradually into our day-to-day lives and that the fear element is reduced because of the, the, the normal, normalcy, if there's such a word, but really just making them an all part of our day-to-day lives. Well, I obviously work in the entertainment industry and, you know, often the entertainment industry can be the first adopters of things like this. And, I mean, we've seen it. Some of the artistic work that drones have enabled to take place it's just mind boggling. Like even my son, 11 years old, will tell me during movies like that's a drone shot. I mean, what did what did they do before drone shots? <laughs> and no, I said, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of helicopters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's and it sure. is. And it is. I mean, if you look, I mean, yesterday we do a huge amount of work with RTE and we do a lot with independent um, cameramen and photographers. There isn't a wedding video or, or, or photography that goes on now without having some drone footage in it somewhere along the way. Again, this has become the norm. And every, every six o'clock news, every night, you put on the RTE news, there's going to be some sort of drone footage. And we've trained all the cameramen within RTE um, to fly drones and to operate drones, how to apply for the permissions when they're operating in congested areas and all the redundancies and the mitigations and safety risk assessments that they carry out on a day-by-day basis. And, and we do that, as I say, with a lot of independent cameramen as well. But the, certainly from a media point of view, and um, there's nothing like it. You know, you can really get, we're also like, working like with the likes of the IRFU as well. Like, and yeah. we're doing a lot with them to looking at their training. We're, you know, the, the, the applications for these are only limited by our own imaginations as to what we can use drones for. Doing a huge amount with local county councils, with local government. Um, and, and particularly, again, that's on the enforcement side, but more so with them evidence, evidentiary gathering. And, to, uh, I really have to ask you about how, uh, how close you came to working on a Bond movie and how, <laughs> the, how good it you must have been when they changed the location from Italy at the last minute. I mean, <laughs> must have been like all of your all your birthdays coming at once and then to be the person to go, well, I think I'll need to be on site for this one. I was devastated, absolutely devastated. They approached me. I was um, a media company here in Ireland who were going to be filming the um, onset. In uh, it was around in Milan and Lake Como for for the last James Bond movie, and oh. they kind of was like, I'm, "I must be on site. You're operating very large drones, and I must definitely be on site." And then the whole thing was full, and they ended up filming somewhere else. And I was so devastated. I just thought this is all my life ambitions coming together. <laughs> but having said that. Watch this space now for flying racing cars and things like that. There's so many exciting things going on in this. Yeah, well, dr- drone racing is one of my son's favorite sports. I have to say, watching drone racing on uh, Eurosport is one of his things. Julie, it'd be weird if I didn't ask you about the name Julie Garland and how it's been to live with with that. If I didn't ask the question, people would be like, "Why didn't you ask her about her name?" 
<laughs> it's so funny. Even even yesterday, I, I I had ordered a new couch and I phoned them up and, and I said, you know, I just wanted to check in it. And they said, what's your order number? Don't know. What's this? I don't know. What's this? I don't know. My name's Julie Garland. Oh, yeah, I remember you. You know, <laughs> it, it is it has served me so well over so many years. I used to work with somebody called Warren Beatty when I was an apprentice in early days. Oh. So arrive up to nightclubs with our ID. And it'd be Warren Beatty and Judy Garland. And they'd say, you wouldn't make this stuff up. And then I used to fly with a guy called John Lennon. And he'd be doing the PA and it'd be, ladies and gentlemen, it's your Captain Judy Garland speaking with me today as First Officer John Lennon. <laughs> You'd have to wait for the laughter in the cabin to die down before you could carry on with the rest of the PAs. So it has served me well over years as a lawyer. Uh, people remembering your name is important um, mm. as, a, as a pilot. And, and just in day-to-day life, it's incredible how people say, yes, I met. I met Judy Garland. Like they, they remember you. Uh, it's not just the fact that they remember meeting you. It's the fact that they remember your name as well. And, Absolutely. And it has they can tell their parents as well. Thank my parents for that. But yeah. they didn't do it intentionally. They, they, they had no idea. It was about two weeks after my christening. They said, oh, you named her after, after the movie star. And they went, what movie star? And then they went, Judy Garland. <laughs> All right, okay, yeah. <laughs> oh, Julie, it's been so much fun to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Look forward to meeting you in person soon. Thanks so much, Jared. An absolute pleasure. I have to say, when I started putting together The Flying Irishman, I had no idea the range of stories that would emerge from it. Julie Garland is just one of them, but what an absolute lady, what a conversation that was. And how interesting is it to think that Eva Tull air taxis will be available in the next few years out of Shannon? Well, next week, we've got a man with a few stories to tell as well in Donald Boylan. So why not subscribe now and enjoy it? Get the episode straight to your phone by subscribing and it'll automatically download there for you. Or give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm Jonathan Regan. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to and leave a review of The Flying Irishman on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Music on this episode is courtesy of Epidemic Sounds. Sound production, editing, and research by Jarlath Regan. Special thanks to Declan Ryan and Ellen James. Flying Irishman is an Irishman Abroad podcast. <laughs> <laughs>